Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education. And I'm here today with Jeff Docking, the president of Adrian College in Adrian, Michigan. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, David. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Great. Well, to start out, could you tell us a little bit about your your life story, uh, where, where you grew up and uh, where you went to went to school and university? Yeah, so I actually grew up in a college town. I grew up in uh, East Lansing, Michigan, on the banks of the Red Cedar River in Michigan State University. I was one of those students who had absolutely no idea what they wanted to do with their life. Uh, so I had five majors in college and... Uh, <laughs> My uh, father called me right before my junior year and said, hey, if you want my mom, your mom and I to keep paying for this, you better pick something. So I actually picked broadcast journalism uh, because I've always been interested in current events and politics and uh, got into that right after graduating from Michigan State in 1983 and quickly learned that I really wasn't all that skilled at it. And um, maybe I'd better continue to look around. And I'd always been interested in sort of the larger questions of life. Uh, why are we here? You know, what's the purpose of life? Is there a God? Things like that. So I actually enrolled in the seminary and uh, spent three years at Garrett Seminary down in Evanston, Illinois, on the campus of Northwestern University. And when I got done with that, I thought, well, when you don't know what you want to do, right, you just keep going to school. And so <laughs> I, had, uh, I had read a lot of Martin Luther King during my seminary years and really thought that his message about nonviolence and how do we work out our problems uh, without shooting each other was as relevant in the mid-80s as it was uh, when he was alive. And so King did his PhD at Boston University, and his archives are still out there from essentially the Montgomery bus boycott to the Great March on Washington in 63. So I enrolled at uh, Boston University in 1988 and fully expected to teach ethics uh, when I was finally done uh, with my PhD in 1994. So I went into it to be an academic and a, and a teacher of ethics. And, and what, was the, what was the actual um, subject or discipline of the PhD? Well, it was. It was social ethics. And uh, I wrote my, uh, my PhD dissertation on a comparative uh, understanding of racism uh, between uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Reinhold Niebuhr and a guy named George Kelsey, who uh, King had when he was at Morehouse College. So, yeah, it was it was pretty deep in, in racial issues and, and sort of why we have trouble getting over this uh, as a country. So, so, so after you finished your Ph.D., tell us how your career unfolded. When did you make the decision to make the move from the traditional faculty track into university administration? Yeah, well, back then, you may remember, David, that the way that you found jobs uh, at colleges and universities is that you would go to the Chronicle of Higher Education, and there was about 50 or 60 pages at the back of the Chronicle of Job Openings. And in 1994, I think there were a grand total of three teaching positions across the country in ethics. Uh, Ethics really wasn't a big discipline back then. I think there are a lot more jobs now. And when I would call the institutions, there were an, an average of about 280 applications for every one teaching job. And I knew that my chances of getting those as a freshly minted PhD were uh, probably less than zero. And so so I, um, I had three children uh, by that time and another one on the way. And I needed to put food on the table and move out of the residence hall that my wife and I were living in. 
And so uh, I took a job in administration uh, at uh, Washington and Jefferson College, just south of where you are in Pittsburgh, in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. And um, uh really got lucky. Uh, I was there for about a year as the dean of students, and I kind of got my big break. Um, I got a new president whose name was Brian Mitchell. And about three or four months after Brian and I worked together, he said, you know, I really, uh, I think you may have what it takes to be a college president. And if you will promise me five years, uh, I'll give you every opportunity to be a president. I'll send you the Harvard programs. I'll give you a seat at the table, but you can't leave for five years. And so we we had kind of a handshake agreement, and uh, ultimately he went on to be the president of Bucknell, and I uh, went on to be the president of uh, of uh, Adrian College. That that's that's great to hear, and really unusual to get a mentor like that just just in the new job. Um, can you tell? Uh, um, obviously, you know, a, a PhD in ethics. I'm guessing a lot of that. Uh, was what didn't focus on necessarily what you'd be doing as a dean of students. How did you convince um, W and J that you were the right person for that role? Yeah, well, the only way that I could afford to move to Boston, which was very expensive even in uh, in that time period, was to take a job as a dorm director. And so uh, I lived down in Kenmore Square. I could actually hear the fans cheer in Fenway Park when they when the Red Sox would hit one over the wall. And so. There were a lot of challenges there um, on the uh, administrative side and ultimately was promoted to oversee an area of campus. And I'll tell you something, for just about any job in higher ed, but certainly for a college presidency, I can't think of a better way to start than in student affairs because you are really uh, just dealing with so many different problems every single day. And every solution you come up pretty much has uh, people that agree with you and disagree with you. Uh, there's a lot of work involved, which, of course, is consistent with being a president. And so, yeah, I, back then, I, as I said, I wanted to be a dean of students, and they ended up saying, well, he's got kind of enough school of hard knocks uh, behind him, even though he doesn't have a degree in student affairs. So we're going to bring him on board. And it worked out great. I love the job. Love loved being a dean of students. So, so can you talk us through how you came up with your admissions growth model during that, that five years? five or six year tenure with work, working with Brian Mitchell at, at W&J and, and sort of how that evolved for you? Yeah, so really two or three things came together, David, all at once that really kind of coalesced in my mind. Uh, the first thing was even then, even during the late 90s, I could see that especially at small private liberal arts colleges, there was a business plan that was going to be a problem and that they were getting very expensive uh, kids were needing more and more financial aid to attend. Uh, the competition between the big publics and all other uh, schools was really heating up. And so I thought, you know, this is this is a problem. I mean, this is not like it was in the olden days uh, where I've talked to presidents from the 60s and 70s who said every August they would just sort of throw open the gates and a bunch of nice students would show up and they'd fill the classes and then they'd close the gates after graduation and do it all again the next year. But but those days were gone. And so that happened. The second thing that happened is uh, my uh, advocation, something that I've always just sort of loved uh, on the side is uh, the sport of hockey. I grew up in Michigan, as I mentioned, and I grew up playing hockey. And I really saw what what sports in general and hockey in particular could mean to kids that played it. And so I started a hockey team at W&J. And the number of students that were interested in coming in and, and, and playing hockey, kids that normally would not 
even give W&J a look was profound. At one point, I had 110 students on a list that I was talking to about being on this little club hockey team that I had started. And the third thing that happened was um, we hired a guy named Rick Crehan, who was the athletic director up at Allegheny College. And during the interview process with Rick, I told him about the hockey uh, situation. And he said, you know, we can do that with all kinds of different sports. He said, we've done some of it at, at Allegheny. He said, you can do it with things like a marching band or student newspaper. And so we hired Rick and Rick and I started putting these programs together and um, and it really started to work at W&J. We grew very, very quickly. That's great. And you were, have been kind enough to, to share sort of the key elements of that uh, admissions growth model in your book, Crisis in Higher Education, A Plan to Save Small Liberal Arts Colleges in America. Um, I'm wondering for those who haven't read it, um, and I don't want to give away all of the secrets, but if you could just give a kind of high-level description of what you saw as the key elements of the model. Because as you've already suggested, it, it's not confined to athletics, but it's it's those other extracurriculars plus ones that give folks a, a reason to choose the institution. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, you know, I think where the whole thing begins, David, is uh, by getting in the head of an 18-year-old which is how old you are when you, of course, begin to, to select a college, maybe 17, but usually right around 18. And it's, you know, it's very, very important for everybody, whether they're selling iPhones and they want to know what iPhone uh, users want or, you know, people, I guess, who run Walmart are always looking for uh, what's the next big seller at Walmart. In other words, to quote unquote, know your clientele or know your customers. And when I got into the head of an 18-year-old back then, what I saw is that Yes, first and foremost, they absolutely wanted a college degree. They wanted terrific professors. They wanted curriculum that would challenge them. They wanted all the opportunities that would go along with uh, having a degree once they graduated. But when you're 18 years old, you sort of make the assumption that all of these professors know more than you, that all of these professors will challenge you, and that uh, the same is true with the residence halls. They're all, they all sort of look the same after a while. Uh, the, uh, the food on campus probably begins to taste the same. And so what are those difference makers that would make a student say, I've got 2,500 colleges and universities to choose from, and I've got roughly 700 small private liberal arts colleges to choose from. Why would they choose the college that I'm at? In this situation, Adrian College or then W&J. And uh, what I decided was that there are a lot of kids that are incredibly passionate about what they do outside the classroom, whether it be, as you said, marching band, you can do it with a symphony orchestra. There are so many kids that love playing the violin, the cello, the viola. They want to keep doing it when they go to college, but they're not good enough for uh, some of the major orchestras around the, company, uh, the country. And so we started these co-curricular programs, and um, they really were a draw. And so whether it's new hockey teams or lacrosse teams or um, bass fishing teams, as we now have here, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's a real draw for students. And they will continue on with their education and do uh, what you're providing them outside the classroom and make their decision uh, for those reasons. Great. So can t tell us a little about the decision. Um, obviously, you built a very successful partnership there at W&J, your decision to, to make the move to Adrian, had you been looking at other uh, college university 
presidencies? What was it that drove the timing and, and, and the decision to go to Adrian? Yeah, I really looked over the entire world, believe it or not. I, I, you know, I still had children young enough to move, uh, although a couple of them were in high school, which hurt me a bit. But, um, but yeah, I was willing to move anywhere. I applied at a number of different presidencies. Uh, but the Adrian presidency seemed like the best fit to me for a couple of different reasons. Maybe most importantly is that I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I had this plan to grow enrollment. But I also knew that higher education was absolutely entrenched in the way that things had been done for about 150 years or 200 years at many institutions. And I needed an institution that was going to be open to doing things differently, to being entrepreneurial, to trying to, to try to bring in somebody who was going to wire the institution in a way that uh, they had never seen before. And Adrian, believe it or not, at that time was what I would describe as desperate. They were hemorrhaging uh, about $1.3 million a year on a, roughly a $20 million endowment. Uh, they had a lot of deferred maintenance. They had underpaid professors. They were only rejecting about 71 kids a year for enrollment. So it was very, very open enrollment. And they were very, very scared. And if there's one thing that I've learned about desperation is that it makes people open to things that maybe they wouldn't be open to before. The analogy I use with my wife is I absolutely do not like the taste of liver. It's <laughs> gross. I don't like how it feels in my mouth. The whole thing doesn't appeal to me. But if I haven't eaten in three days, I will eat all the liver you put in front of me. And I think to some extent, uh, Adrian College was really uh, looking for some different answers. And so I chose Adrian because I could uh, do many of the things that I had started at W&J, but were not able to finish because uh, Brian had left and we'd gotten a new president and things were uh, moving in a different direction there. And so it was time to move on. Great. So, um, you know, the conditions you just described, right? Uh, structural deficit, not, not selective at all, deteriorating infrastructure. Not a lot of presidents would say, ah, that's just, just where I want to be. But, but, but you, you've outlined why it was a great fit for what you wanted to do. I'm curious, though, arriving there with this bold vision you had that had a major price tag on it, right? A $30 million investment in, in the facilities infrastructure. Um, how did you convince uh, the board and, and the other stakeholders to make this sort of bet the institution, you know, uh, investment in your strategy? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And um, I was uh, I was hired just to put this into context on February 11th of 2005, but the job didn't start until July 1st. And as you know, from being a college president, often you get hired three or four months before you actually begin. So I actually was able to put together the whole plan while I was still at W&J from A to Z. And then I did two things when I, when I got to Adrian that I think helped in the long run. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first thing that I did was I rented a huge ballroom uh, in Ypsilanti, Michigan at a lodge. And I invited all of the faculty I invited the administrative assistants, all the administration, of course. I invited some people from the plant department. I even invited a few students. We had hundreds of people in this ballroom. And I basically said, look, I'm the new guy on the block. Um, I've got some ideas about where we ought to head as, a, as an institution. Um, I'm going to articulate these ideas to you. Um, 
I certainly am open to feedback. Um, it's going to take a few months to begin to implement uh, the beginning stages of this. And so I would encourage you to listen to the plan. And if you've got other ideas, better ideas, big problems, uh, I'm willing to listen. And my door is always open and you can come and see me. But if I don't hear anything over the next two or three months, I'm going to assume that there isn't another plan out there. And so I was very, very transparent about all of it. And so that sort of brought the community on board. And we even put a name on the plan. We called it Renaissance One. And so everybody on campus knew it was ultimately showing to Ren One. Hey, how's Ren One going? Or did you hear about <laughs> Ren One? And, you know, what's what's up with Ren One? You know, is this thing going to happen? So so I did that. And that was in August. And then the, the first trustee meeting that year was in October. And I didn't invite uh, a lot of trustees to this meeting with the uh, the you know, on-campus community because I really wanted them to hear it for the first time at our first trustee meeting. So I came into the meeting, and of course, I had the, the PowerPoint all set up and, and ready to go. And essentially what I said to the trustees was, I have good news and bad news. I said, the good news is I have a plan. The bad news is it's very expensive. And they said, well, how expensive is it? And I said, it's $30 million. <laughs> And as you can imagine, uh, there a were a little bit of a up. gasp. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, I didn't say this during my interview, believe me, or I never would have gotten the position. Right. Um, and so um, and so they said, OK. And then I took the next couple of hours and I showed them how a 30 million dollar investment would bring a return on investment that far exceeded 30 million dollars. And that at the end of the day, this was a business plan about dollars and cents. And that the worst thing that we could do is just continue to do what we are doing, but by making some strategic investments with very, very measurable results, David. I mean, I showed them, you start a hockey team, this is what you'll bring in. You, know, you start a lacrosse team, this is what you'll bring in. And then the third part of the three-legged stool was accountability. And I told them that we were going to have to hire one person for each one of these initiatives that was fully accountable. And that if the job wasn't getting done, we knew just to how, uh, excuse me, who to go to. So um, they went and borrowed $15 million immediately. And I, I raised $15 million and, um, and we started building and we built and built and built. Um, and the other thing I told them was I said, uh, you know, we lost $1.3 million last year. And you're not going to believe how much you're going to lose next year. It's probably going to be double that because when I hire these people, to start these programs. I can't hire them the day before the programs start. So for example, when you start a lacrosse team, as you know, you got to give them nine, 10 months to recruit. So you're essentially paying coaches and not getting any return until the next year starts. But they jumped in. It was kind of, uh, you know, Texas Hold'em on ESPN, all in, all the chips were in. If it would have failed, we would have certainly gone bankrupt. But as the cliche goes, with high risk goes high reward. And thank goodness, uh, it worked out. So, Jeff, I'm I'm curious. Obviously, you know, you can see in retrospect, it was a huge success. I, I wonder why you sort of did the chips all in on the very first day when you're, you know, you're you're a new president. Um, you're new to the whole community. There's not a lot of resource as opposed to same vision, but, you know, not risk the scary $30 million price tag, but say, do the first phase that you'd propose, build the stadium, do the first teams that come with it, show that you're getting the additional students that are coming for that, and then the next stage. And, and so 
in other words, staging it and sort of building on success versus saying, you know, we're, we're, we're doing a bet the institution all in right away type of thing. Yeah, another great question. Uh, really, two answers to that. One is, uh, you know, we did have some iterations, right? There was some incrementalism at, at Washington and Jefferson College. We certainly didn't do $30 million at W&J, but I had done enough to see that it had worked. And Brian was supportive enough, and Rick was there with me at the time. Um, and so I thought, okay, you know, let's go to dress rehearsal. You know, this is working. Okay, I can see uh, it's it's happening. But to be honest with you, David, I was so absolutely convinced that this plan would work. And it wasn't perfect. And I can tell you about a failure or two along the way. Fortunately, they weren't fatal failures. But I was so convinced that the overall plan was going to work that I just said, you know what, I, I'm just, I, I'm going for it. And, and, and um, you know, I, I don't try to be cavalier with very many areas of my life. And I never looked at this as being cavalier at the time. But I had some very smart people on the board. I mean, the the, the CFO of Daimler Chrysler was on my board, bankers, a lot of business people. And they were saying, you know what? Makes sense. Get after it. So we did. So I did sort of have some ramp up. And then um, and, and I was just so convinced that it was the right thing to do that I just did it. And um, you mentioned that along the way, there were um, some things that didn't go as as you'd initially planned. Can you share sort of a, an example or two of those that 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 didn't work the first time and how, how you course corrected what you did? Yeah, so the one that always sticks out in my mind because it, uh, I was so convinced this was a great idea and it just, it just absolutely fell flat. We decided that we would start uh, women's field hockey here because there are a lot of excellent private schools in Michigan that offer women's field hockey, and not a lot, but but enough that you should be able to field the team. And so we went down to Northwestern, which had just won some national championships in women's field hockey, and we got a young woman. She had just graduated. She was fantastic. We said, we're starting women's field hockey and you're going to be the coach. And we gave her a credit card and we gave her a recruiting car. And we said, look, you know, hit the road and we'll see you in nine or 10 months and bring us, you know, 20, 25 athletes. And we're going to have a new stadium built for you guys. It's going to be great. And she left and went out and, you know, uh, ate and stayed in the hotels and, you know, spent money on gas and came back about five months later and said, fire me. <laughs> we said, why? She said, this will not work. And we said, why? And she said, you know, the real big field hockey areas are, uh, you know, Boston and Connecticut, you know, around New York, the Northeast. She said, there are so many teams out there that, you know, uh, the kids do have uh, options. She said, secondly, when I would show them the pictures of Michigan and during field hockey season, March, April, there was still huge snow piles around our field. And she said, it's, uh, it, they just won't do it. And so we gave her a little severance and sent her on her way and said, you know, thank you so much. Um, and so, you know, these things happen now and again. And I think the lesson that I really learned from that was to, to cut your losses. You know, I mean, she was exactly right. And there's been a few other colleges that have tried to do this out here. And they, even if they can put together a team, David, they get beat so badly I mean, absolutely smoked by the by the other teams that have had you know, seasons for years and years that it's really not fun for the kids. So, yeah, that was that was one that certainly fell flat almost right out of the gate. Yeah. And as you point out in the book, that in addition to the you know, the fact that this can bring students, bring students from outside the area, it's also having that single point of accountability. And in this case, she 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 was the one who said, fire me. Right. But but you have someone where you can say if it's not working, you're not like well, what are we going to do? You, you, you know, just the action to take. 
Well, that's right. And that really even starts with the interview. So I interview uh, all the coaches on the last interview of the day. And uh, I also interview, for example, the symphony director, uh, the bass fishing coach. And I tell them, you know, I'll tell you something I said to my symphony director. I said, you may think that you're the, the conductor of a symphony, but you're not. First and foremost, you're a football coach. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, look, I hope you have beautiful music. I hope you win state and national titles, but I want something more than that, which are students. And so you're going to need to stand out, you know, like a football coach, you know, after a game, you're going to do it after symphony concerts in high schools and wait in the lobby for these young people. When they come out, if you think the first violinist is fantastic, then you need to walk up to them and say, I heard you play and we're building the best symphony we can find for a college and we'd love to have you. And, um, and so I said, you know, my, my, my hope is the kid says, I don't even know where Adrian College is. I've never even heard of it because then it's a new body. It's not a kid that came here for, as a pre-med student that realizes, oh, I can play in the symphony. And so that is really just, you know, pun intended music to the ears of an 18-year-old to get recruited for anything that they love, that they feel passionate about. And so, yeah, uh, but but that accountability, I mean, her number, I believe, was was 12, something like that. And I said, you got to bring 12 kids. And if you can't bring in 12 kids a year, it's not going to work. And Right. And that's 12 times four, right? So that's nearly 50 new students in, in the symphony. That's right. That's right. And when you essentially net $25,000 on tuition, room, board, and fees, um, that's significant extra revenue. If you brought in 10 kids a year, right, at 25000 that's $250,000 a year. It's $100,000 over four years just with one class. So, yeah, that's how the numbers work. So one of the things I thought was interesting, you know, people might wonder, well, you, you built this innovative formula. You've got it working. Why are you going to publish it and share it with all your competitors? In the book, you make the contention that that actually you don't view small colleges as competing with each other, but as competing with the much larger publics that are out there because we only need, you know, 400 students a year to be thriving. But I'm curious, given that your strategy was premised, at least initially, particularly around student athletes, um, as you know, growing up next to Michigan State and I was at Rutgers, the student athletes in D1 have a very different characteristic and different talents than those in D3. You know, the good news for us, right, is they're, they're, Student athletes tend to perform as well or better in the classroom in D3. We, we can't give them special sports scholarships. But I'm curious, for, for recruiting those students, it would seem like that's a very different student than the one who's, who's looking to play at, at the D1 level. Yeah, so a couple different aspects to, to your question. Um, I, I think the first way I would answer it is this, that if you think about all of the students graduating from high schools uh, this year as a pie, that 85% of all of those students that, that, that go on to college pick large public universities, three, four, 500 in a classroom, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 students on campus. 85% choose that type of school. So the small private college like you and I are at is are only a representative of about 15% of students. And so to take a bite out of the pie it makes the most sense to go after the 85%. Now, that's not to say that the Chatham and Adrian might not be after one or two hockey players or that we might not have a few kids looking at Albion or Hope or Alma, you know. But at the end of the day, if we're fighting over just a few different students that are choosing between us and another small private, 
we're probably all in trouble. And so the idea was to uh, to go after the big publics by showing students that they can continue to do things at our types of schools that they never, ever would be able to do at a big public. And so part of the draw is to simply get the kid on campus and to help them understand that A, they'll get a great education. If you look at our graduation rates compared to the big publics, we do a fantastic job getting kids out in four years. Uh, but then, as I said earlier, they can do something outside the classroom. So nothing makes me happier. As we had about a year ago, true story, I was over in the admissions house and a young man came in. He said, oh, I'm looking between uh, Adrian and Michigan, and, but I want to play in the band. And we said, whoa, you know, it's it's easier to play on Michigan's football team than it is to play in the band. I mean, it's just incredibly competitive. But if you want to play in the band at Adrian, we don't cut. And uh, regardless of your skill level, you're in the band. And so, again, this is getting into the the mind of an 18-year-old. And so we really, really like to get those kids that maybe haven't looked at small privates before, think maybe there's nothing to do, and help them understand that in terms of the quality of the education and the overall experience, that in many, many metrics, uh, we beat the big public. So that's the idea. But you're right. We get a different kind of athlete. We still get a fantastic athlete. I say if you're if you're six six and play wide receiver and, and run a four four, then you're at Michigan. And if you are six uh, one and play wide receiver uh, and run a four five, you're 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 at Adrian College. I mean, there's very small margins, um, and the competition is still great. And once the kids get between the lines on Saturdays, it's still just a battle. They still have fun, which is really what you want at the end of the day. I'm curious, um, you know, you, you had say, said in the book that, you know, if for, for most uh, liberal arts colleges, if you can get to 400 students per year, you're really at a great critical mass. You can be thriving with, the, um, with your environment. Um, and yet you quickly were able to surpass that at Adrian and have gone well past it to, to 600 students per year in a class. H- how do you decide what is the, the right number uh, in terms of thinking about the, the best student experience and and where it makes sense to be doing that? And, and are, are there decisions you made where you said, well, I, I really don't want to go for that, that growth? Or h- how do you think about that number? Yeah, I really think about it in, in a couple different ways. Uh, first of all, I do a fair amount of reading on, on what sort of uh, is the small college experience for students. I mean, at what point does a student say, Mm, you know, this feels big to me or bigger or not as personal. And that number usually is around 2,500, 3,000. So you've got a lot of room for growth over and above the 1,400. That was uh, my initial goal when I got here. Now, we had gotten down to 840 kids in my first class and so in my first, you know, student population. And so um, growing to 1,400 seemed like a Herculean task at that time. But you really can grow these schools to around 2,500, even up to 3,000. It still feels like uh, a a relatively small school. But the second thing that we looked at here uh, was capacity, which is at what point do we have to build new dorms? Do we have to build new uh, dining halls? Do we need bigger gyms? Do we need a larger student center? Because once you start making those investments, you're into some pretty big money. And so um, I guess fortunately, uh, back in um, 2005, we had huge capacity. We could grow to 1,400 and not have to build anything. 
because the school at one point had been almost 1,400 during the Vietnam War. And they left the dorms up. They just mothballed them. So we had to build some dining hall space and a few other things. But for a president that's looking at growing, I would encourage them to to think about 2,500 to 3,000 as a good upside number, unless they want to be more mid-range. But beyond that, what is their capacity? Now, you can do some other things. I think Boston College asks all students to move off campus for one year because they don't have enough housing. And there's other ways that uh, that you can handle some of these infrastructure issues. But yeah, that's that's what we looked at. And and just to clarify, there the, the one thing that that thirty million investment you made in addition to the coaches was in building new state of the art athletic facilities. But the academic and the the residential capacity was there for fourteen hundred. Well, what we how we did it was as I said the the athletic facility uh, infrastructure was Renaissance One, and if you had come to my campus back then you would have seen that there was a lot of dirt flying and a lot of bulldozers, but they were building ice arenas and track and field complexes and football stadiums and uh, baseball stadiums. I didn't have any of this stuff. And so, yeah, that went into the infrastructure, but what I, on, on the athletic side, but what I told the faculty at that time was, look, we also have an incredibly dated and outmolded uh, infrastructure on the academic side. And so if you can hang in there with me, faculty, for five years and let me grow this place, I will take the additional money that we're able to bring in through these uh, student athletes and invest them in the academic side. So uh, they, they, they were patient. There were a few that were upset. They always are, right? But uh, they were patient. And certainly we were good to our word. And as a matter of fact, uh, every single academic building has been redone on this campus, either built new or fully renovated, uh, except for our art building, which uh, we are just completing uh, the fund fundraising for now. So we're on to our very last building. We call it the bookend. And after that, all of the academic spaces on campus will be uh, relatively new. That's that's great. Now, I think you've already started to answer this, but you know, at, at Chatham, before I had a chance to, to meet you and, and to read your book, we, we, we adopted a very similar strategy for, for going co-ed. So we, we had 76 student athletes when we were an all-women's college. Now we're close to 400, very similar kind of strategy, not uh, the, the scale of the investments you made in new facilities, but particularly teams to bring in students from out of state, even out of country, who wouldn't otherwise have looked at Chatham. Um, but one of the issues we faced was for an institution that didn't have any real athletic history. You know, they'd had teams, but it had never been a real driver of enrollment and hadn't been very competitive at the D3 level. It's been a big change to the campus culture, not just going co-ed, but but bringing in all these student athletes. Is that something that you faced at Adrian? Because I'm guessing that, you know, with that growth from 800 to 1400 and past, student athletes quickly became a very high percent of your total student population. So was there pushback on that? And and you mentioned, you know, you had to ask the academics to be patient for five years, um, you know, to get that investment back. Was there a feeling like all the money's going to sports, not to, you know, the core of the academic enterprise? So I'm just curious how you manage those dynamics. Um, yeah, we had all of that. Um and probably then some. So there, there were some uh, some academics that were uh, upset. Uh, I remember I was at one gathering and a professor came up to me. This is a couple of years into the whole Renaissance One uh, process. And he said, hey, there are a lot of academics uh, that are upset. They think you're really leveraging sports to grow enrollment here. 
And I raised my hand. I said, guilty as charged. I said, that's exactly what I'm doing. I said, but I don't have another plan. Do you? Because it's not, you know, you can't just stand on the sidelines and throw stones, right? I mean, these are real issues. You've got to have bodies on campus. You've got to have families willing to take on debt, students willing to do the work. Often the student takes on the debt. I mean, these are very, very serious, serious problems for schools that have wonderful histories. And so and so I did have faculty say, uh, we think that you're leveraging athletics to grow enrollment. And, and I said, uh, guilty as charged. But I said, you've got to have another plan. I mean, I, I, if you've got another plan, I'm willing to listen. But you can't just stand on the sidelines and throw stones. You really can't. And, and these are very, very serious problems. Um, you know, these schools have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Some of them were 162 years old. They have alumni that love it. They have people, uh, you know, whose whose livelihoods are contingent on, um, you know, cashing the check every two weeks that they're sent for uh, working here. And so the the weight of history is upon the shoulders of, of the leadership. And um, and so, yeah, I I sort of uh, try to answer it as transparently as possible. I tuned some of it out and I realized that when you're in a leadership position, it just comes with the territory that people are going to take shots at you. And, and I took the shots and tried to stay the course. So, yeah, the biggest thing uh, that I was concerned about them and am concerned about to this day with respect to athletes is the issue of missed class time because they do miss more class than non-athletes. And two-thirds of our students, roughly 65%, come in through athletics. And so I actually think one of the things from this pandemic that are going to be positive for this school is that we are going to provide more uh, you know, uh, infrastructure to take classes remotely if you're on the road, to mic the rooms, and to really make it simple for professors to tape record uh, lectures and for kids to see it either synchronously or asynchronously um, in the future. So my goal is to get to a place technologically on this campus where students never have to miss another class. That's great. And and it ties in directly to the next question I had for you. So um, when the book came out in 2015, I think you were pretty prescient. Most of the trends you were talking about around the crisis in higher ed ha- have only intes- intensified for, for, for small privates. Um, but I'm curious how your own views have evolved since then. What's changed? You, you touched on one, um, you know, making seeing the benefits out of uh, COVID in terms of being able to do more virtual and online delivery. But but just sort of how, how your thinking has evolved and, and how the model has evolved for Adrian since then. Yeah, I think the way my own thinking has evolved is that, um, you know, I would describe uh, what we were facing in, in, in 2005 when I started that model and, and began to grow it as, you know, the perfect storm, that all of these, you know, student debt load issues were coming in and demographics uh, were, were going down the cliff as a very real thing. Uh, you know, states are not putting as much money into higher education. Families are not willing to pay as much. Uh, there are just a lot of problems that are all coming to bear at once. And as I said, a perfect storm. And I really thought that the model that I'd put together in 2005 could sort of grow indefinitely. But what I realized is that it couldn't and that there are limits to even, uh, you know, how many athletic teams and co-curricular programs you can offer and what people are willing to pay, even if they love the sport that, uh, that they're playing at your college. And so, um, 
Yeah, it's it's we now recruit for 50 different co-curricular programs. We're just starting rugby uh, right now. We're doing something uh, a lot of other schools are doing, starting esports. But we're sort of running out of that. And so um, there needs to be a, a new answer. And, um, and my, my thinking over the last few years has evolved to trying to find uh, maybe uh, doing something on the academic side, much like we had done on the athletic side during the first 15 years I was here, that would leverage academic programs in a way that uh, would get to the most important thing that we do every day at these schools, which is teaching and learning inside the four walls. Great. And I, I think another component that you've really brought to it, and I, I'm sort of viewing it as the second major transformation to talk about, is is the low-cost model consortia. So, you know, in that REN1, it was really all about Adrian and how do you make the institution thrive. But the low-cost model consortium, which I've had the pleasure pleasure to join and to learn from you in, is 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 one that is really seeking to help the the sector and those who who want to take part. Can you can you talk about the origins of that idea and and how it got started? Um, sure, be happy to. Um, a very uh, far sighted president at LaSalle uh, University out in Boston, Boston, Michael Alexander, pulled seven or eight presidents into a room in Indianapolis about six years ago. And he was seeing some of the same things that, that I was seeing. And essentially, he said, we not only have to uh, you know, hold down the costs of higher education to make it accessible to families, we've got to drive down the cost by 30 to 40% over the next several years, or we're just going to be out of business. And he said, and so I pulled this group of presidents together to spend two days in, in, in Indianapolis to talk about how do we do that? And what really uh, was clear to me in preparing for that meeting is that uh, the only way that you can do that is by cutting your costs on campus, uh, 80 to 85% of which go into labor. In other words, you know, uh, salaries are really the, the crusher uh, for uh, budgets uh, at colleges. And so what I had said during this meeting was, look, if we can begin to work together and if we can begin to leverage the internet in ways that we never have before, not as one-off you know, colleges trying to do some online learning or whatever, but by truly, truly coming together as a sector, which was truly the one thing that uh, it always bothered me a little bit about uh, my presidency is that when I would get together with my colleagues, I loved them. I thought they were in it for the right reason. I thought that their values were right. They cared about kids. They believed that education is the way of the future and the way to a better life. But when we would stand around and talk about sort of what was coming next on our campus, it was like everybody became very secretive and held their cards right up against their chest, not wanting anybody to know what they were doing for fear that they would copy it. And I thought, you know, if we can let those uh, cards down and show everybody what we got and begin to put together the best collective hand, then we will really be in business. And so um, we did. We, we, we came out of that meeting committed to starting a program. We started a certified financial planning program, which sort of did work and sort of didn't work as a first out of the gate effort. I can talk about what didn't work. But that was really the, the beginning. And then other presidents jumped in as well. And so um, I really give Michael a lot of credit for understanding that the days of annual cost increases have got to be over. And and how did you decide on that initial group? Was was that people you and Michael knew or how did you sort of put together this 
uh, thing, which, as you note, is it had not been very common for, for institutions to work together in that way, particularly ones that weren't co-located, right? You, you, ha- you have some cooperation with other Michigan privates, but, but to do something that is institutions around the country. <laughs> it's funny you would say that because I had never met Michael, and it was totally random how I ended up in this group. As a matter of fact, I just happened to be on the phone with a president uh, whose name was Tom Flynn. He's retired now. He's at Alvernia. And um, he, um, Tom said, hey, I'm supposed to go to this meeting in Indianapolis next week, but uh, I can't make it. Uh, you seem like you like to you know, look at some different visions for higher education. Why don't you go? <laughs> so I said, all right, I'll, I'll go. So I think I sent Michael an email. I don't even know if I talked to him. I said, hey, would you mind if I showed up? He said, hey, come on on. So I don't know how we got this ragtag group together, but we all ended <laughs> up in the same place and, and we've been together ever since. Great. And so talk about that initial experience with the certified financial planner and also you know, some of what, what you did in terms of grant funding, other things to sort of get the group off the ground. Yeah, so um, we we decided at that meeting. Look, we're going to do a certified financial planning uh, effort, and it's, there's a lot of jobs in, in CFP right now, and and it's a certificate, so it didn't seem like a real heavy lift. And so we decided that we would ask uh, for colleges to um, to volunteer to be a part of it. So we grew a little bit over the next few months, and I think we got up to to 19 schools that were ultimately a part of it, and seven said they wanted to do the first CFP degree. So we had seven schools. We had seven professors because one professor on every campus uh, taught a class. We had seven financial aid offices. We had seven registrars. We had seven billing offices. We had, oh, just a dog's dish of people that needed to be talked to and communications that needed to happen. And um, to be honest with you, I thought it, it, uh, it did not work out well for just that reason. It became too complicated, too quickly, too many calls. Money was flying around. You had to pay this school for this class. And how many kids did you have in it? And, you know, were you billed by the number of kids? And did you get billed even if you didn't have a kid taking it? I mean, it was it was tough. There wasn't an organizing principle around it. So, you know, I realized, well, we need a platform uh, to, to really handle a lot of this. So, so that's how the CFP got started and, and, and sort of worked, sort of didn't. We certainly had kids go through it, but not in the numbers that was going to make any kind of meaningful change uh, to our budget or certainly attracting students from high schools. Right. And I think the other element that fairly quickly came into the model that I think is one that is particularly appealing in terms of, in addition to the idea of sharing courses um, and being able to share some costs was the idea of working with some leading national employers like Google um, and others where it's hard to interest them in just going to an Adrian or a Chatham because we don't have, even with the growth, huge, huge graduating classes, but they are interested in in scale and and, and reaching people. So how did that piece come into the, the equation and, and, and just to discuss that element? Yeah. So, um, I just need to go back a little bit so that your sure. listeners don't get a little bit confused about how the corporations came in. Um, as we were working through the CFP program and I was seeing what was working and what wasn't working, a couple of things became clear to me. One was that no school, no president, no vice president or provost had the the person power to be able to pull this together again in any kind of meaningful way and that we needed to go out and find some really committed, bright people to help all of our colleges do this together, bright people that would make this their only job. 
Secondly, um, as I said, those people needed to be committed to putting together a platform that would sort out all of the things that I just mentioned a minute ago and provide an organizing principle for these schools. And so um, I had, through some work I was doing with the NCAA, become aware of a couple of guys that were working in New York City that had graduated from Harvard seven or eight years ago, uh, Kevin Harrington and Connor McCarthy. And I said to them, I I said, guys, uh, I know we're doing NCAA work, but I said, I want to fly into New York. I want to uh, get a restaurant uh, near LaGuardia, uh, two-hour lunch. I'm going to throw an idea past you. And um, if you like the idea, we can talk more. If not, no big deal. So they had recently quit their jobs on on Wall Street because they weren't uh, getting a lot of uh, meaning out of them. And they were sort of looking for something to do. And I did. I flew out and I broached to them this idea of creating a consortium that would provide a number of different things. As I said, one, a platform. Two, that it would be tied in with, with, with corporations and professional organizations around the United States that would help us develop the absolute best curriculum that we could offer to students. And so the example that I used is I had been doing some work with Google uh, in which Google was providing curriculum to Adrian College for free in some high demand areas that Google needed to fill positions in. We ultimately turned this curriculum into three courses. And I told Google that if they would provide the curriculum, we could use my accreditation and I would share it for free with any other college, any other president out there that wanted it. So I had been doing this with Google for about a year. and I knew I had a template that would work. And Google was fantastic, by the way, uh, really, really a great company to work with. But Google wanted to limit it to five schools, then 10, then 20. And I wasn't scaling as fast as I wanted to with that, even though I had roughly 250 presidents who had told me that they wanted to see if they could get some computer science classes through this consortium model. So long story longer, um, Kevin and Connor moved out to Adrian as my assistants to the president for innovation. They hired a couple of additional classmates of theirs uh, from Harvard. And for the last two plus years, two and a half years, the consortium has now grown to 91 uh, colleges. And um, we've passed a number of different majors in addition to computer science. And many of these uh, schools have, um, have passed the majors on their campus. And it's offered in a way, which I can explain if you want me to, that's at a much, much, much lower cost than needing to start new majors and hire new professors with retirement plans and IT and office space and everything else. So it's really a new model for higher education. And at least so far, it really seems to be working out well. Great. And I I would love it if you would describe the model in a little more detail, particularly if you can talk about how this sort of second iteration that you came up with, with, with RISE, relates to the the low-cost models consortium, and then also uh, the other element you've mentioned bringing in the large employers is is you've also brought large universities into this in the different subject areas. And so thinking about how the the professors or the large university folks relate to the the small colleges that that make up the, the bulk of the membership. Yeah, you know, the, the chronology and the process is, is pretty simple, uh, uh, David. Uh, essentially what we do, and you can take uh, web design or uh, computer science or artificial intelligence, any of the high-tech uh, uh, majors that so many of these schools would love to start but can't afford to start, and we first go to a leading academic. So in this case, we went to Charles Severance, who's a, an unbelievable professor at the University of Michigan in these subject areas. 
and we said, Charles, uh, how would you like your curriculum shared among six, 700 small private colleges, liberal arts colleges throughout the United States? And he loved it. He said, yeah, I've been teaching at the U of M for many, many years. And, and the idea of my curriculum getting passed around is great. So he uh, put together curriculum in a number of new majors, many of which I just mentioned. The next thing we do with that curriculum is we take it to a, a leading corporation. In this situation, we did take it to Google. And we said, look, Google, is this what you want in your college graduates? Is this updated? Is this so cutting edge that when kids go through this curriculum and graduate, that they can step into Google and not need two or three years of getting ramped up, but really have what they need to make a difference right from the start. And Google looked at the curriculum. They thought it was great. They tweaked a little here, a little there. And we said to Google, look, if you are willing to look at this once a year, just to make sure that we're always keeping up with the latest changes in high technology fields, uh, would you be willing to um, formally endorse this and say to students graduating from high school, yes, if you go to Adrian College and get a degree in computer science, this is what we want you to learn. So Google uh, did. It took over six months. It went through their legal department. It went through a bunch of very important people there. And they said, yeah, we will formally endorse it. But then maybe the most important thing happens. We take that curriculum that's been created by a leading, uh, you know, often R1, passed through a, a leading corporation, and we give it back to a small private to actually teach the curriculum because we don't teach like R1s. We have smaller classes. We know our vibe. We know our culture. We know what students need. We know the speed they can go with. So uh, in this case, we actually are teaching it uh, from Adrian College and sharing it with uh, schools all around the country. And uh, kids can now get a computer science degree uh, by taking, it ultimately just turns into a few classes at Adrian College. Um, all of their electives, their distribution requirements, uh, you know, math, the stuff that we've been offering for years or that it, that's required uh, for some of these high-tech degrees are still done in the traditional way on campus, but they would uh, get online with another small college uh, to learn some of these particular classes, which allows all of these other schools to not have to hire computer science professors and still offer the major. So it's yeah, I, I think it's it's the way of the future. I, I feel good about it. And at least so far, we seem to be getting a lot of traction. And as you described earlier, one of your frustrations with, with some of the other college presidents is this culture of sharing, of working together. It, it has, hasn't always been there, particularly when it comes to, to core academic offerings. What do you think has enabled this to grow so quickly and, and to succeed where maybe other efforts like like uh, this ha have not gotten off the ground. Yeah, I think a couple of things. I, for one thing, I think that the pandemic has uh, really accelerated this whole thing. I think that many, many, many colleges prior to the pandemic were sort of of the mind that they would never do online. That's not who they were. That wasn't their culture. And of course, all of us went from usually fully in person to fully online over the course of a weekend last March. And I think it's opened people's minds to the fact that this can be done well and that if you really spend time thinking about how we do this um, the best way possible. Not, you know, sort of some fly-by-night corporation out of Silicon Valley, but truly own this within uh, higher education, that it can be done very, very well. And the pandemic has accelerated that thinking. But secondly, I think that uh, schools have realized it can't just be the way it's always 
been done. We have to change. I mean, schools are closing. I, I wrote a, an article yesterday where I showed that uh, more schools have closed over the last five years and in the past 15 years combined. I mean, there are wonderful institutions that are going away and it's scaring people. Faculty jobs are going away. And maybe it's the desperation comment that I, you know, that I mentioned, uh, you know, at the beginning of the interview. I think people are open because they're very, very concerned, maybe even desperate at times to doing things differently. So, yeah, that's that's what's happened culturally. And, and what I love about it is that it really does go back to the student and their families. What we're going to be able to say to students and families when we begin to lower costs is that we're the first sector that's doing it. We hear you. We understand that that's a problem. And we're going to work together for you. And it's going to be a great day. So I'm curious, you mentioned just, you know, this this recent op-ed you've written and, and what you're seeing is the trends. As you look out over the next decade, um, what do you see as as the key things that are likely to be happening, particularly for the, the smaller private sector? Do you anticipate more mergers and acquisitions, more closures in, in the sector? I truly hope there are not mergers and acquisitions. I don't think that's really good for anybody. And I certainly hope there are not closures. What, what I foresee, believe it or not, is a lot of what we do staying the same. Um, I think that if we do this right by working together, we can still offer small classes, personal attention, uh, that four-year on-campus, beautiful Norman Rockwell painting experience that kids have where tears at the door when the mom and dad are leaving after moving in freshman year, all of that can happen. And I also think that we can all remain uh, wedded to the liberal arts to the extent that we want to. But I think that we will uh, see uh, schools, as I said, working to, to be more efficient. You know, these, these campuses are incredibly expensive to run. They're little cities, right? We've got housing and roads that need plowed, and we have recreation and obviously education and food and, and all of that. These are expensive places, and it's what kids want. You know, students don't want just one dining hall line like they have in some of the military cafeterias. They want five places to eat and amazing recreation spaces. And we need to provide that to them or they're going to vote with their feet and go somewhere else. But we've got to do it more efficiently. And so I think what you will see over the next several years are schools really being open to this this collaborative working together to uh, to get an economy of scale. Great. Um, when you look back on, you know, what you, what you've done so far, and obviously, uh, you, you know, you are continuing to to lead Adrian, and now the, this wider consortium. What um, what are the things you look back on that you're you're most proud of uh, your achievements over this period? Yeah, well, um, given what's happened in the small private sector, obviously over the last several years, I think the thing I'm probably most proud of is that we have been able to grow. We've been able to balance the budget. Uh, the vast majority of the years, there's been a couple of years when we've uh, taken small draws against our endowment to, to make everything work, but uh, things are, have been very good overall. Um, I think that I'm proud of uh, the quality of student that we're bringing in now, as you probably have experienced on your campus. Uh, anybody that looks down their nose at this generation shouldn't be. These are beautiful young people. And the, the future of America is, is going to be in good hands when it gets turned over to them. They're, they're genuine. They want to do the right thing. They're willing to pay the price. And I think most of them have uh, what I think is the most important thing of all, which is uh, persistence. They, they just work hard and they just keep coming at you. 
And, um, and that gets you a long way in life. Um, you know, I say in my own life, you know, there's smarter people out there than me. There are certainly uh, wealthier people, better looking people and people that probably did a whole lot better on their SAT uh, than I did. But I don't think that, um, I don't think too many will, will outwork me. And I, I think that work ethic uh, goes a long way. And I think the kinds of students that we get understand that. And I, maybe the, the last thing I would say about uh, what I'm proud of, especially with this place, is that we've been able to stay 42% first generation. Uh, there's a misperception out there that we bring in a lot of wealthy kids from the suburbs, and that that really isn't true. We we have a lot of moms and dads that uh, have mud on their boots and dirt under their fingernails from working in the factories in and around uh, Detroit, and they want something different for their kids. And they're sending them to college and taking on debt. And uh, we've been able to stay a very much a first-generation school. And I'm I'm proud that despite the, uh, or in addition to the beautiful facilities and whatnot, uh, we've been able to maintain those numbers. That, that's impressive. Nearly, nearly half of your students' first generations. It's got to be one of the top in the country. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it is. I've never compared it, but I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly proud of it here. These kids come with a great deal of humility and uh, no entitlement. And they're just so happy to, to be here. It's, it's, it's really a beautiful thing to watch unfold. So as you shared, when, when you started your career, you know, you had uh, gone to first to uh, divinity school and then you had uh, trained to be an ethics professor. What, what, what do you think are the things that most prepared you to be a successful university president? Yeah, I th- you know, I would name you know, probably two or three things. The first one you probably wouldn't guess, but uh, I think the thing that probably prepared me as much as anything was having a paper route for five years between the ages <laughs> of 11 and 16, because <laughs> you have to get up every morning, rain or shine, snow, sleet, whatever, and just get out there and do it. And um, and so, you know, persistence is something that I think is very, very important in these uh, positions. Um, I think it's also important to to continue to remember that uh, really your your biggest problems in any job come with hubris. In fact, Jim Collins said recently, and I was listening to him, that in any corporation, uh, the first step towards doom and gloom is uh, is hubris, is arrogance, and thinking that you're all that and that you're untouchable. And so, uh, despite the successes, you know, we we try to keep our feet on the ground. Um. And the other thing is, I, I had a vice president ask me about 10 years ago, he said, what, what's your philosophy of management? And I said, oh, my gosh, I've never even heard that question before. I said, I don't even know what a philosophy of management is. I said, I, honestly, I, I'd have to say that it's just tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may. And so that's what I've tried to do here. Um, you know, once you start prevaricating or not being honest with people, you're, you're in a lot of trouble as well. Maybe that goes along with, with arrogance. So I think that those, those types of values have helped me a lot. I certainly have made a ton of mistakes, tend to be competitive. Um, not always the most patient person in the world. Urgency is a big part of who I am. And I'm sure when I look back, I'll be embarrassed by sometimes when I've pushed too hard, but generally speaking, I'm still, still here after 16 and a half years. And I'm, 
I think the average now is about 5.2 for college prep. Yeah, you've tri- you've tripled it, I think. So <laughs> yeah. so yeah. obviously that 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 that's a great sign things are going well. No. You you've already touched on on some of the attributes that that you measure success by the percent of first gen, the the growth that you've seen in the number of student numbers. Are there other things you in the kind of culture of accountability you've built that you use to say, you know, these are things I know that this is this is working at Adrian? Yeah, well, you know, so many of our schools are located in small towns, many in the Midwest, and, and small towns that have been dying for a long time. And so I think that one of the ways that I try to measure success is just what's my relationship with City Hall. And it certainly has been up and down at times, but for the last several years, I think it's been pretty good. And and what I mean by that is, are we a place that doesn't have the the bubble over it, at least perception-wise, from the community, but will they come on campus for special speakers and for sporting events and for concerts? And is this a welcoming place that has foot traffic from people maybe that didn't even go to college, but but feel like this is a welcoming environment? And so that obviously is is very, very important to me. I also think, um, you know, you can certainly look at things like graduation rates. You can look at the talent of your faculty. I mean, I think, you know, the thing that separates high school teachers from college professors is knowledge production. And I think, you know, even though we're teaching first, they do need to be publishing. They need to be creating knowledge that, you know, takes the world in a, in a new and better direction. And so we look at all of those things and um, and sort of make our decision on how things are, are, are working out for us. Great. So, so over the course of that period, um, what would you say is the, the greatest challenge or challenges that, that you faced in and how did you address them? Yeah, well, the, the greatest challenge that we face is the one that we're going through right now, no doubt about it. Uh, this global pandemic has been a 10x for me. And as I said to a friend uh, somewhere around Christmas time, I, I love my job, but I'm not enjoying my job. And I think uh, a lot of us have felt that way. Certainly, you know, the poor people working in the restaurant industry and, you know, so many other sectors, maybe all, every other sector of society. Um, except if you work at Amazon, uh, you know, it has felt that. And, um, and so I, uh, I think, you know, convincing faculty to get back in the classroom that we would keep them safe was a real challenge. We have a unionized faculty here. They wanted to do remote learning uh, by and large. And, and, and I, I said no to that. And so that turned into um, quite a battle there. Um, bringing students back and trying to convince parents that um, we were going to do the best we possibly could, keep their kids safe, but maybe uh, in convincing the students that we could only do so much and that if they were going to party and if they were going to get together in large gatherings, uh, that all of us have the life that we create for ourselves and that uh, actions have consequences and uh, they may get COVID. And they did. They did get together. They party and we had a big spike. Um, and we did have to go to remote learning for a couple of weeks to try to bring down those numbers, which we did. And we handled it and it was fine. And nobody, certainly nobody died and nobody even went to the hospital that I'm aware of. But um, it has been unbelievably challenging. And when we decided to open, we have a group of about 20 of us to get together every week to we call it our COVID meeting. I said to student or to uh, this group of 20 mid last summer, I said, you know, if we're going to do this, if we're going to open, not knowing much about this virus, we've got to get our head around that we could lose a kid. And can we handle that? Can we handle someone dying of COVID who's a student here? And that's a heavy, heavy thing to have hanging around your your, your shoulders, right? But um, 
we decided that um, we could keep them safe and that there are a whole lot of uh, downsides to not opening, and not the least of which is depression and anxiety and obviously kids not being able to move on with their life. And so we decided that we could do it, and, and fortunately it's worked out. But I know a lot of schools made the decision to go the other way, and I respect that as well. We, we opened. We actually never even closed last spring. We kept all of our residence halls open. Um, we played all of our sports this year. We had a football season in the fall. And so it's pretty normal around here, except that everyone's wearing a mask. And um, there's a whole lot more takeout food coming out of our dining hall than, than in the past. Hmm. Yeah. So, so I, obviously, this has been an incredibly challenging year for, for everybody, and particularly uh, what was already a pretty challenging job as a college president. You layer on top of it, pandemic, you know, uh, pretty challenging uh, election cycle and things that we had. So I'm curious, you know, when you, I'm sure, have a chance to talk to new college presidents who are coming in, what what advice do you give them in terms of navigating this position and how, how to be successful when they're, when they're first starting out? Yeah, I think um, the first thing that I would tell them is that, make no mistake, these are really tough jobs. And uh, they they don't get easier as time goes on. In a lot of ways, in my opinion, they get, they get tougher. And so, uh, there's, there's really no other way to say it than these are really, really hard jobs. In my opinion, the second thing I tell them is that if, if they need to make a decision and they realize that they're emotional about that decision to not make the decision until they can, uh, not be emotional. Now, some of that is just counting to 10 as the old cliche goes, but, um, I have found that I've made my worst decisions when I'm angry at somebody or I'm upset about a situation. And I really think that one of the things that distinguishes highly educated people is sort of a sense of who you are and controlling your emotions and not just shooting from the hip when um, when you're caught up in something. And so that, that's been helpful, I think. I think, you know, uh, one of the things that I've learned is that you need to reset the bar every day. And when I came in back in 05, I really thought that it was like, tell people excellence matters. This is where the bar is. You know, put your hand as high over your head as you can, because that's where the bar is. And that everybody would just sort of get it and, you know, charge and, you know, create a great college. But, you know, David, in my, my experience has been that the forces of mediocrity are real. And that every single day people are trying to lower that bar and whether it's uh, teaching uh, evaluations from students that aren't good and, 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 and need to be confronted or bubblegum on the sidewalk and everything in between, um, people need to be uh, reminded that these students are paying a lot of money and they deserve an excellent education from A to Z. And that um, you make a lot of enemies and bother a lot of people when you're constantly reminding them of what the standards are. But I do think at the end of the day, they respect you for it. You know, and then when you retire, you can make a lot of friends. <laughs> That's great. Jeff, it, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for je being generous with your time and, and the, the lessons from uh, your great success at Adrian. And, and best of luck with the Low Cost Models Consortium. Well, thank you so much, David. Like I said, I'm honored to, to be on this call. I lived in Pittsburgh for many years. Love the city. Love your school. And I wish you and all of my colleagues out there absolutely nothing but the best during these challenging times. Great. Well, I hope you have a, a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Jeff. Bye-bye.